I just want to say, uh, last Sunday, uh, the, the message was a new perspective on disagreement. And I think we'd all agree that disagreement is pretty, pretty ripe in this country right now and around the world. And I just want to say uh, thank you to the overwhelming amount of uh, to people who sent in uh, responses to that. Uh, overwhelmingly positive. Um, I tell you, you know, the Holy Spirit is working in our body. And it, just because it's not easy doesn't mean it's not right and good. So I just think a lot of people are catching that, this sense that, that in the church is truly something magnificently timely, uh, but we do need to step into it uh, with vigor and with passion and with forgiveness and with uh, trust and hope. Um, and as we started this whole season of a new perspective on whatever it was, we're kind of thinking what these things might be. And so um, it's very, very important to realize that uh, all of us have a little something probably in our lives that we are somewhat more of an expert on than the next person. Um, so I, I was thinking about who in our congregation do I know that might have a different perspective on what it is that the church currently today should think about and think about how Christ would have us maybe change our thinking about or at least reflect upon that. Um, because I, I don't think about all these different things. Um, I had some ideas. Uh, so Fuzz Rana, Fazal, who's uh, one of the guys that uh, reasons to believe, he and I were talking one day and I just mentioned that to him. And uh, it felt very out of left field at that point. He said, we should talk about a new perspective on uh, biotechnology and science. I was like, that's not very Christian. <laughs> science? Aren't we opposed to science? Uh, Dr. Fuzz Rana is, is an incredible guy um, of just a passionate heart for, in his field of understanding, connecting with people and trying to bring them from a disbelief through engaging in the things that they understand about this world in science to a place of even just at least considering uh, belief and then maybe moving beyond that. And he was on the pastor search team that brought me here. So obviously he's a really wise guy, really smart. Uh, but he is a dear, dear friend and I hope you will give him a good hearing this morning as we reflect with Christ about this issue uh, that faces us today. Thanks, Fuzz. Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, that's not the first time I've been called the wise guy, by the way. In fact, there's actually other descriptors that have been used to describe me that involve wise, but I won't say anything about that more this morning. Uh, I've really enjoyed the series that we've been in uh, this summer, uh, All Things New. I hope you have as well. It's been interesting. It's been challenging. And I think it's really been deeply rewarding. And you know, and the whole idea, the whole premise behind this series is uh, how does uh, our faith in Christ change the way that we think about those things that we do in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis? How does our faith in Christ change the way that we interact with one another in the church, the way we interact with people outside the church, particularly people of other faiths and other worldviews? How do we uh, engage our culture differently because of our faith in Christ? And we're going to continue in that vein today by talking about how does our faith in Christ shape the way that we should think about biotechnology we are living in the cusp of entering into a brave new world uh, where there are these incredible advances in biotechnology, advances in things like gene editing, computer brain interface technology. Uh, there are advances that are taking place with stem cell research, cloning, and the list goes on and on. And these advances can be rather frightening 
They can be rather scary. And our first reaction as a church is to condemn these advances or to react in fear to these advances. And what I'm going to suggest this morning is there actually is another way that we should uh, be reacting to these advances. And uh, we're going to get into some, some heavy stuff today, but we're going to have fun doing it. And uh, to, to get things started, to have a little bit of fun this morning, I'm just curious, how many of you have seen the Jurassic World or the Jurassic Park movies? Practically everybody in here except for a few people. Well, the premise of these movies, I think, is well known, right? Scientists discover ancient dinosaur DNA, and they clone dinosaurs, resurrecting dinosaurs from extinction, right? And then they set up theme parks where people can come and experience those dinosaurs firsthand, right? Now, people are surprised when they find out that I've not seen a single one of those movies, Pat and I are the only two people in here, I think, that haven't seen those movies. Now, and people are surprised because they're like, you're a biochemist, and it's about cloning. Wouldn't you want to see that? And it's like, not really. And, and while the, the, the theme of the movie is, I think, very important, or the message, that is that there should be limits to science and technology, to me, at the end of the day, I just see these as monster movies where dinosaurs are terrorizing people. And that's just not my cup of tea. So, like, if you like to watch dinosaurs eat people, there's no judgment for me. Uh, you have at it, have a good time. It's just not my, my cup of tea. Now, lest you get the wrong impression, one of my favorite TV shows is The Walking Dead. So I'm perfectly fine watching zombies eat people, but I just don't want to watch dinosaurs eat people. Anyway, uh, uh, when the latest Jurassic World movie was released, our publicist at Reasons to Believe uh, approached me and said, would you be willing to talk about scientific errors in Jurassic World? Because if you do that, we could get a few media appearances where we could have some fun with that, and then we could lead, that could lead to more serious conversations about science and faith. And I thought, sure, I, I'll do that, but I didn't want to watch the movie, so what did I do? I googled scientific errors in Jurassic World, and there's articles written by paleontologists who are complaining about all the scientific mistakes in these movies. So at the risk of completely ruining this franchise for you, this morning we're going to go through a few of those scientific errors. The first error is that the dinosaurs were depicted without feathers. Now, this may sound weird to you, but we now know that dinosaurs were feathered creatures. In fact, uh, most paleontologists today would say that dinosaurs technically never went extinct. They're still here living with us. We just call them birds today. Uh, and the, the belief is that birds essentially are the evolutionary descendants of dinosaurs. And we now know that dinosaurs are feathered. And there are two broad groups of dinosaurs called the avian dinosaurs, the, the bird-like dinosaurs, uh, things like creatures like theropods, like the, veloc the velociraptors. And then there are the non-avian dinosaurs, but they all had feathers. Now, the, the director of Jurassic World knew this, that dinosaurs were feathered, but he decided not to uh, have the dinosaurs depicted with feathers to create artistic continuity with the other movies in this franchise. And to be fair, it's, this, has been a, this is a recent discovery, so when the other movies were made, we didn't know this to be the case. Uh, now, another mistake in the movie is the dinosaurs sounded like, they roared, but in fact, we now think dinosaurs sounded like birds. And having a dinosaur sound like a bird isn't really very scary, so you want the dinosaurs to roar, right? 
Another, another error is the dinosaurs that were depicted were really, really large, and they really weren't that large in real life. Now, another mistake, which I find amusing, now, I don't know this firsthand because I've not seen the movies, but apparently there's a scene in the movie where a T-Rex is chasing some of the characters and they decide if they stand perfectly still, the T-Rex won't be able to see them because the T-Rex could only see motion or movement. Well, that's not true. So just a a word of advice. If you ever find yourself being chased by a T-Rex, just keep running, don't stand still. because you're just gonna make the T-Rex's job easier. Okay, one other mistake, and this is the the, the queen mother of them all. Uh, We can't clone dinosaurs even if we had ancient DNA. And I'm not gonna get into the technical reasons why that's the case. If you're interested after the service, I'll be happy to spend about 20 minutes with you explaining why we can't clone dinosaurs, but we can't, Not, not if we had ancient DNA. Now, I know that there's probably some of you in here this morning that are a little disappointed to learn that, right? Because wouldn't it be cool one day to go to an amusement park and see dinosaurs in real life, right? Well, lest you be, uh, again, too disappointed, uh, even though we can't clone dinosaurs from ancient DNA, there's actually a thought that we could resurrect dinosaurs from extinction. This is a serious scientific proposal that's on the table Uh, championed by Jack Horner. How many of you know who Jack Horner is? Well, he is, yeah. He's a a famous dinosaur paleontologist at the University of Montana, and he was the real-life inspiration for the Alan Grant character in the first Jurassic Park movie. And a couple of years ago, he wrote a book called How to Build a Dinosaur. And I love the subtitle. The subtitle is Extinction Doesn't Have to Be Forever. Uh, and the idea here is that we can basically uh, reverse the evolutionary process. That if birds are the evolutionary descendants of dinosaurs, Horner argues, then why couldn't we just simply go in the lab and re-engineer birds in such a way that they grow and develop to be dinosaur-like creatures? So this is a serious idea that is on the table right now. And the very first bird that scientists are looking to convert into a dinosaur is the chicken. And so this is true. This is not making any of this up. (laughs) But the very first bird that we're going to try to convert into a dinosaur is the chicken. And people in the scientific literature are seriously talking about what's been dubbed the chickenosaurus. And the, the idea, now, and this actually makes sense if you think about it for a minute, uh, because of the poultry industry, we know a whole lot about chicken biology. Uh, we have the chicken genome that we're beginning to understand. We understand how chickens grow and develop. Uh, and so because of that understanding, we could actually uh, basically, again, in principle, convert chickens into dinosaur-like creatures. And here's a, a diagram kind of showing the difference between a chicken's anatomy and the proposed chickenosaurus's anatomy, where that anatomy would be modeled after a velociraptor. And so uh, this, again, is, is again a, a serious effort that's underway. And again... This is serious work. For example, a few years ago, a team at Harvard University actually did experiments where they took 
these microscopic beads that they coated with what are called growth factors, and they implanted them in the chick's skull during the course of development, and they could actually get the skull to develop, instead of a beak-like structure, a snout-like structure like a, a dinosaur. Another team from Chile uh, actually did experiments where they were able to, using that same kind of an approach, convert the leg structure of a chicken into a structure that looks like a dinosaur leg. So there's actually progress being made towards uh, resurrecting uh, dinosaurs from extinction and progress being made towards creating a chickenosaurus. So if you're ever walking down the street of San Dimas one day and you happen to see a giant chickenosaurus stomping around, my advice to you is to run. Don't stand still hoping that the dinosaur won't see you or the chickenosaurus won't see you. Now, we've had a little bit of fun this morning, but all of this work is actually part of a larger program going on in, in the scientific community. And this is called, uh, this program is called Synthetic Biology. And this is a, a, a program where we now are, based on our understanding of biology and the techniques that we've developed to manipulate biological organisms, we now have the, the capability of going in the lab and creating artificial, non-natural forms of life, that we can literally create life in a laboratory setting. And so this, this enterprise is one of the most exciting, uh, most dynamic areas today in science. It is attracting enormous amount of funding, enormous amount of interest, and uh, it's a, really a fusion, if you will, of engineering and biology. And whether you realize it or not, you probably are familiar with synthetic biology if you've ever heard of genetic modified organisms or GMOs, right? This is, a, this is part of synthetic biology. And the idea behind GMOs is, can we genetically engineer, genetically modify plants to make basically non-natural species of plants that either will grow in different environments in which uh, that were, would be harsh or unsuitable for those plants to grow in? Can we produce plants that will produce more food or more nutritious food with a higher food value? And so a lot of people think that GMOs are going to be the way in which we one day will actually feed the world. Uh, and so there's a lot of interest in this. Some people look at, at, at um, organisms that they want to modify as bioreactors. Could we engineer plants or animals that we could, again, feed food to and that they would convert that, that food into highly valuable um, materials like medicines and things like that? A lot of the work that's going on in synthetic biology involves microorganisms, bacteria and yeast, where the idea, again, is that we would feed these bacteria that we engineer in the lab or yeast that we would engineer in the lab relatively inexpensive raw materials, and they would convert them into biomedicines, biofuels, and bioplastics. And so many people think that synthetic biology really represents the next revolution in technology and is literally going to transform our world. And there's a lot of potential good that can, be, that can come out of this work. A lot of potential good. But it makes us a little bit uneasy, right? Because we've seen the Jurassic Park and the Jurassic World movies, right? When you start creating life in a laboratory, things can go wrong, right? And so we have ethical concerns. We have safety concerns about this work. Uh, 
and so it's a mixture of excitement, anticipation, but also fear and concern. And everything can kind of be summarized uh, that we're feeling in a single question, should we play God? Should we play God? And that's what we're going to explore this morning in light of biotechnology, is how should we answer that question as Christians? Well, the passage of scripture that I want to spend some time unpacking this morning is Genesis uh, 1, 26 through 31. Uh, this is a passage that is found in the first book of the Bible, in the first chapter of the first book, in the, the famous, well-known Genesis 1 creation account. This is uh, a portion of the creation account that corresponds to the sixth day of creation where human beings are, are created. And this is what the, the text says. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So we're going to spend some time this morning unpacking this very, very important passage of Scripture, this foundational passage of Scripture. And the first point that I want to, to extract from this passage of Scripture has to do with what it teaches us about human nature. The passage teaches us that human beings are made in the image of God. Now, this idea that we're made in God's image is only mentioned in a few places throughout the Old and the New Testament. But this idea is profound in terms of what it means uh, for so many aspects of our faith. Uh, this, is a, a, this idea that we bear God's image forms the backdrop for the totality of, the, of Scripture, the totality of the Old and the New Testament. Uh, this idea, I would argue, is perhaps the organizing theme in all of Scripture, the idea that we bear God's image. And yet as important of an idea as this is, Scripture never actually defines what the image of God is. It gives us some clues, but it doesn't actually define what the image of God is. Uh, and over the centuries, theologians have uh, explored, again, the concept of the image of God. And there are three major views that have emerged uh, from, from work in theology as to what the image of God is. The first view is called the resemblance view. This is the view that the church has historically held, and it's the idea that human beings resemble God. We resemble our creator. Now, we've got to be very careful here because we're not talking about physical resemblance because God is spirit. God doesn't have a physical aspect to his makeup. But in other words, we resemble our creator in an immaterial sense, in a spiritual sense. 
And so the idea here is that if God is the creator, then we as image bearers are creators as well. We have technical inventiveness. We have a capacity for creativity, for rational thought. Uh, We can problem solve. The, The resemblance of you also argues that we have a moral aspect to our nature. We inherently understand right and wrong and we desire justice. Uh, The resemblance view argues that we have a sense that there is a transcendent reality, that there's a reality beyond the physical material universe and we desire to connect with it. And then finally, that we are relational creatures that can relate to one another in very sophisticated ways and ultimately we can relate to our creator. Now, the representative view is a view that is actually becoming more prominent today, which says that the image of God isn't qualities that we possess, but rather it's a responsibility that we've been given, that is, we are to represent God as image bearers here on earth, that we are God's representatives. Others would argue for a relational view that the image of God just simply is a term that defines our relationship to our creator that is unique, that no other creature possesses. Now, my perspective is that all three views are actually, uh, actually have merit. And I would adopt a composite view that basically says all three of these views actually are simultaneously correct. They're not mutually exclusive, but I think give us a full picture, at least the fullest possible picture we could have of what the image of God is. Now, because we bear God's image, according to Genesis 1, we also have responsibilities as human beings. Uh, God gave us responsibilities as image bearers. The first is that we were to multiply and fill the earth. Now, this is a very serious responsibility granted to humanity by God because as we read in Genesis 5, everyone who was a descendant of Adam bears God's image. That is, the image of God was installed in uh, male and female when they were created but that that image of God is going to be propagated generationally to every offspring of the very first human beings, to all the offspring, all the descendants of the very first human beings. So everyone that descends from Adam and Eve bears God's image. So the idea is that when human beings were going to multiply and fill the earth, we were going to cover the totality of the earth with image bearers that would bring glory to God because his image would be in every corner of the earth. Uh, We were to subdue the earth. Uh, In Genesis 2, we see that that Adam uh, was created outside the garden, and God caused the garden to grow, and then he placed Adam in the garden and then created Eve from his side. And the Garden of Eden was this ordered place. It was a sacred place where human beings were in this perfect relationship with their creator, but outside the Garden of Eden, the creation was unfinished. And the intent was that the order in the Garden of Eden was to be spread over the totality of the surface of the earth, converting chaos into order as human beings subdue the earth and brought it under our control. And in this sense, we were to become co-creators with God in that we were going to finish off God's work as creator. Also, we, because we bear God's image, we were given rulership, we were given authority over all of creation. That the authority that belongs to God was transferred to us. And we were granted authority over the totality of the creation. But we were to be benign dictators in that we were to care for the creation. We were to take advantage of the creation, use it to promote human flourishing and progress. But we were never to exploit the creation, but to be caretakers of the creation. 
So what does this mean now when it comes to biotechnology? Well, when, because we bear God's image and because we are creators ourselves, whenever we create, when we invent, when we design, we are manifesting the image of God and we are bringing glory to God. When an artist paints a beautiful painting, that's an expression of the image of God and it glorifies God. When a musician writes a beautiful song, that is a manifestation of the image of God and it brings glory to God. When an architect designs a building, when a, a landscaper designs a landscape, that's manifesting the image of God and it's bringing glory to God. When an engineer develops a new technology that's manifesting the image of God and it's bringing glory to God. And, and because we were to subdue the earth and bring it under our control, because we were to be caretakers of the planet, to rule over the planet, it me meant that we had to understand God's creation and that is a mandate for doing science. And so when we in investigate the world scientifically, we're expressing God's image, bringing glory to God. And when we develop even biotechnologies where we're creating life in the lab, that's an expression of the image of God and we're bringing glory to God. And because we've been granted authority over the creation, we have the right to experiment on animals to create artificial non-natural life forms. It falls underneath the authority that God has been granted to us. And so my point would be this, that when we ask the question, should we play God, my response is we have no choice. Because we bear God's image, we have to play God. Because we bear God's image and, and been given a responsibility, we have to play God. That is, that is how God created us. So the problem isn't playing God. The problem is trying to take God's place. That's the problem. Uh, and, and so that is why we are really concerned when we start thinking about emerging biotechnologies. It's because we know that human beings have a tendency to try to take God's place. And that tendency was seen even in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were given the command to eat from any tree, fruit from any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they wanted to be like God. They wanted to take God's place. And that as a result of not being satisfied with their proper position within the creation, that damaged, it severed, it destroyed the relationship that they enjoyed in the Garden of Eden with the Creator. And as a result, they were expelled from the Garden of Eden and were now left to be in the world apart from that relationship with their creator. And as a result of what theologians call the fall, sin was introduced into the creation. And as a, there were consequences. There are consequences to that sin. And those consequences correspond to the commands that human beings were given originally. We were to multiply and fill the earth, and now there's increased pain in childbirth. We were to subdue the earth, and it's now by the sweat of our brow that we were going to eat from the, the fruit of the earth. Um, that we were to care for the planet and now cursed is the earth because of us. So the consequences of, the, of our rebellion, our desire to take God's place is that the relationships that we had with our creator have been damaged. 
but also the relationships that we have with other people have been damaged and our relationship with the creation has been damaged. And it's these damaged relationships, I think, that rightfully concern us when we think about emerging biotechnologies. So, how does Christ make all things new in this situation, in this circumstance? How does Revelation 21.5 apply here? Well, the long and the short of it is this, that all those relationships that were damaged as a result of our desire to take God's place can be redeemed through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. He is redeeming those broken relationships through his sacrifice on the cross. That there is an opportunity for our relationship with the creator to be restored, to be recovered, to be made new again. Uh, if we embrace, again, Christ's work on the cross. And so often when we think about redemption, we think solely about our relationship with God. But the redemption is much more extensive than this. The gospel is much more impactful than just simply our relationship with our creator. It also impacts our relationship with other people and even our relationship with the creation itself. All of these are part of the redeeming work of Christ on the cross. There's a wonderful book that I would commend to you called Christian Mission in the Modern World. This is a, a Christian classic written by John Stott. And a few years ago, this was republished as an expanded edition where Christopher Wright, one of John Stott's longtime associates, wrote a collection of essays reflecting upon John Stott's original work. And so both are compiled into this expanded edition. And in one of the essays, this is what Christopher Wright uh, states. Integral mission means discerning, proclaiming, and living out the biblical truth that the gospel is God's good news through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for individual persons and for society and for creation. All three are broken and suffering because of sin. All three are included in the redeeming love and mission of God. All three must be part of the comprehensive mission of God's people. So just as we were created to be co-creators with God, because of the redemption, we are now to take on the role of co-redeemers with Christ. Now, I want to be really, really careful here, lest I get the hook and get taken off the stage by Grant. <laughs> when it, we talk about being a co-redeemer, I do not mean that in any way, shape, or form, as, as, as human beings, we have any capacity to save ourselves, to redeem ourselves, or to redeem another person. But what I, that, 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 that act of redemption is through the cross of Christ alone. But what I mean by this is that we have a role to play in the unfurling plan of redemption that God has for people, for society, and for the creation. For example, when we, we talk about the idea of evangelism, this is where we are functioning as co-redeemers with Christ. It's through Christ's death on the cross that people can be redeemed, but it's through our proclamation of the gospel that people hear about the, re the offer of redemption uh, that, that uh, Christ has uh, made available to all people because, again, of his death on the cross. And a, a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks ago now, Melody Anderson did a wonderful job talking about uh, how we should think about evangelism and just some really encouraging advice on how we should go about engaging people and sharing our faith. 
But this idea, again, of being co-redeemers is, is found as part of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where uh, Jesus says to his disciples, go out into the world and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach them to do likewise. And so, again, we are co-redeemers with Christ in terms of restoring the broken relationships between people and God by proclaiming the gospel. That um, also, we can play a role as co-redeemers in redeeming society. And again, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Chris Neal introduced the idea of the kingdom of God being here already, but not yet fulfilled. Grant brought up this point last week, that the kingdom of God is here but not yet fulfilled. And I'm going to bring up the point again in in light of this, is that the idea here is that the, the kingdom of God was established with Christ's first coming here on earth. And it's now up to the church to spread the kingdom of God throughout the earth. And that that spread is through evangelism, through proclaiming the gospel, but it it also is spread by the influence that we can have as a church on our broken world, on the broken relationships that exist in societies. That that we are to go out and, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is part of our mission statement, to love people and to do good. That is bringing light into dark places. That is extending the influence of the kingdom of God into our culture, redeeming our culture. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment of them all? He said to love God with everything you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that is profound because the reason why we are to love our neighbor as ourselves is because our neighbor bears God's image. And how we treat our neighbor is how we treat God himself. If we love our neighbor, we are loving God, we are worshiping God. And if we ignore our neighbor or hurt our neighbor, it's as if we are assaulting God himself. And then finally, we can play a role in redeeming the creation. We've done enormous amount of damage to the creation as human beings. And we should care about the creation, we should try to do what we can to reverse that damage. This is participating in in the redemption of creation. And there's a passage in Romans that I don't, if I confess uh, truthfully, I don't really fully understand. Uh, But it's clear from this passage that the redemption even includes the creation itself. Paul writes to the church at Rome, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So again, I don't know that I fully understand this passage, but it seems to me that the redemption includes the creation. Well then, what does synthetic biology have to do with this? Well, synthetic biology is a tool that is available to us to help us to carry out our role as co-redeemers. For example, uh, synthetic biology uh, can help us make a case for God's existence and the rely and, and uh, for God's existence, I'm sorry, and role in the uh, origin and design and the history of life. Uh, so many people are far from God in our world today, and they use science as an excuse to reject belief in the gospel. And 
it, they can't even entertain the gospel until they're convinced the creator exists. And so synthetic biology offers us uh, essentially a tool to be able to construct a new type of argument for God's existence. And I'm not going to get into the details here. Uh, it's a little bit involved, but if you're interested in, in seeing how this argument works, there's a book I wrote a few years ago called Creating Life in the Lab that I would uh, commend to you. Uh, how does synthetic biology help us to love our neighbor as ourselves? Well, as I mentioned, um, we could engineer organisms now to, to generate um, medicines that could literally change people's lives, alleviate pain and suffering in the world. For example, uh, there's a compound called noscaping, which is used as a cough suppressant in certain parts of the world. And it turns out that noscaping uh, is actually produced from opium poppies. And you can imagine the bureaucratic red tape involved in growing opium poppies to produce a cough suppressant, right? And, and there's a limit to how much of this can be produced because uh, opium poppies only grow in certain parts of the world. Well, it turns out that noscaping actually has anti-cancer properties. It could be a, an effective cancer drug. And uh, the problem is we can't generate enough noscaping to actually uh, progress it uh, much beyond uh, small-scale clinical trials. And this is ex an exciting advance because we've got a ton of safety data already on noscaping because it is used as a cough suppressant. So it could leapfrog all kinds of steps in, in clinical evaluation and matriculate to, to maybe clinical settings very quickly. So a team of researchers from UC Berkeley took brewer's yeast, the type of stuff that you use to brew beer, and they genetically modified this organism to produce large amounts of noscaping, now stabilizing potentially a near-infinite supply of this drug. Uh, this is going to be uh, an area, again, synthetic biology, where we're going to see a revolution in technology, and this is going to uh, impact the way economies operate. And so, again, this is going to create jobs. It's going to create employment. Because of the nature of synthetic biology, it's going to be technology that was going to make resources more broadly available to people around the world. It may very well be what's critical for us to feed the world so we can use this as a tool to love our neighbor as ourselves. And then finally, synthetic biology is a wonderful tool to help us do a better job of caring for the creation. We can engineer bacteria that can clean up pollution in the environment. A team from Japan just recently engineered a bacteria that can digest polyethylene terephthalate, which is the pet plastic that's found in, in, in the cleared uh, water bottles that we use. And, and this is a very difficult compound to break down. This is a very difficult polymer to break down. This bacteria can do it very quickly. And so not only will this clean up landfills, but you could imagine people engineering bacteria to break down plastics. And you know those giant, pieces, those giant places in the ocean where there's all that debris? Just fly overhead and seed those oceans with the bacteria that will basically break down that plastic and convert it into harmless uh, raw materials that could just be absorbed into the oceans. Or... Uh, we can manage the resources of the planet better. People are already working on designing bacteria that can generate hydrogen gas that could be used as a clean, renewable source of fuel that, again, could help us undo some of the damage that we've done to the creation. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask the, uh, the worship team to come back up, but I'm just, and I'm going to close with, with this uh, final thought. 
And that's this, that uh, when it comes to this idea of should we play God, again, I think the answer to that question is yes, that we should play God. Uh, and again, we're, we're concerned. Why? Because of, of the, the, if, the effect of sin on our world. But if as Christians, instead of adopting a posture of fear, instead of adopting a posture of condemnation every time new advances take place in biotechnology, to set aside that, that fear and to instead look at these advances as ways in which we can participate in, 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 uh, with these advances and try to appropriate these advances for us to play a role of, of co-redeemers with God uh, in terms of restoring the broken relationships between human beings and the creator, between the, the broken relationships in society and our broken relationship with the creation. Uh, could we think about biotechnology not as something to be frightened of, but as a gift that God has given to us as the church that we could use to fulfill the mission that God has called us to.